0: Hello and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for anyone who loves cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren and I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Oh,
1: we are. We have moved past the dreaded January. <laughs> I'm over it. It sucked. It sucked for a lot of people. It was like.
0: The month that never ended. It was it the was March the 2020 of
1: 2022. Ooh. It really was. It really was. Mm-hmm. Icy cold here, tons of snow.
0: It was she just a nightmare. even the grass since Christmas. Oh my
1: goodness. It was terrible. But we're back and we're we're we've emerged like the Chilean miners to borrow a phrase.
0: <laughs> is that Is that wow. a common phrase we use? Well,
1: no, it's a it's a it's a my brother, my brother and me thing. Okay. Uh, <laughs>
0: It got stuck in my head and it just came out. That's good. Anyway. We have gorged ourselves with Valentine's Day chocolates. Oh, and also my clearance favorite. chocolates. Which is That's the best part better. of
1: the holiday is going to your local grocery and or CVS the day after the holiday. The, the candy holiday, holiday. And then getting everything for 50% off. Just giant bags of mm. Dove chocolate, peanut
0: butter M&Ms. I got I to gotta do a quick plug. Dove Please. has upped its flavor game. There's it a Midnight has. Cookie Crumble Dove <gasps> that is the best uh, convenience store chocolate I've ever bought. Get out. It is you know, dark chocolate with dark chocolate cookie crumbles in it. And it's oh perfect. Goodness. And it right, pairs really good with coffee. Oh, so, I believe it. So if it's like 10 a.m. and you're at your work desk and you have your mm-hmm. coffee, like it's appropriate to pull sure. out a handful of these Dove Midnight uh, cookie crumble chocolates because it's yeah. like
1: it's a mid it's a mid morning treat oh yes it's Synergy. a little like yeah it's like ooh, I I finished writing this email I didn't want to write <laughs> I deserve a little treat <laughs> with my coffee <laughs> all right I'll have to check that out I was actually planning this weekend to like go to Walgreens and or CVS and like scope out because I've been so like dying for can- like every afternoon I'm like candy today I gotta eat a candy bar. I gotta eat some candy. And Valentine's has the best candy. So I'll t- I'll check out the dove and, and let you know my sorry thoughts. I derailed us, but
0: you know, I thought no, I thought totally other people fine. should know.
1: Yeah, no, please. You're doing everyone a favor. You're doing the Lord's work, Julia. And I can't imagine anyone's gonna be like, ugh, I hate talking about candy. I mean, we're
0: constantly on flavor watch in my household, so Yeah.
1: I know. I, I mean, the you guys are on the cutting edge of flavors.
0: <laughs> And it sounds like a joke, but it's 100% true. We have approximately four different kinds of limited edition Oreos in our house right now, just because they were limited edition and we needed to try them. It's a snack or whack situation. You got to try it. Yep.
1: I know. It's spilled over to our house. When we see something, we're like, well, should we snack or whack this? You got to snack or whack it.
0: I know. So,
1: um, (laughs) no, it's fine. My topic has absolutely nothing to do with candy.
0: But it's February.
1: But it is February and it's Black History Month and I wanted to make a contribution to that and um this person I have not so I'm doing a biography today. And this person, I mean, I I feel bad because I've I've always heard her name mm-hmm. and I I knew she was important to civil rights and just kind of black feminism in general and I knew she was a journalist, but I didn't really know like the details of her life and like what she actually did. And she's amazing. So today, my topic is going to be about Ida B. Wells. She, Queen of Zinga, Winnie Mandela, Ida B. Wells. Why can't you tell? Why can't you tell? So before I get into it, just FYI, I got a lot of my research from um, the website blackpast.org. Make sure that you donate, they do a lot of good work, Um, a lot of uh, archiving and history. And writing on the the history of Black people in the United States and also um, around the world. So definitely check them out. Um, also, uh, the book "To Keep the Waters Troubled: The Life of Ida B. Wells" by Linda O. McMurray, and "Black Leaders of the 20th Century," which is another book by John Hope Franklin and August Meyer. So, Ida Bell Wells. Her middle name was Bell. Aw, Bell Lake. Nice name.
0: Bell like B E L L?
1: Yes, like okay. the like the um ring 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 said, instrument. Ding, <laughs> is a bell an instrument?
0: Ooh. Oh my god. On its on a single bell? Yeah. No. I don't think a no. single bell is an instrument, but I think if you got three bells, you got you got some you got instruments. A, you got some
1: music going. Anyway. So she so I Ida B. Wells was born in Holly Springs, Mississippi on July 16th, 1862. She was actually born into slavery during the Civil War. Uh, But once the war ended, her parents became politically active in Reconstruction-era politics. They were very active in the political environment in Mississippi during this time. And they also um, kind of instilled in her the importance of education And due to that, she enrolled eventually at Shaw College, which is now known as Rust College. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a historically black college founded in 1866. And it's actually one of the oldest of the Methodist HBCUs. Um, If you want to know more about historically black colleges and universities, please check out Julia's episode 60 entitled, all caps, College. It's 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 pretty good. good. It's pretty good. I enjoyed it. Um, Her father was also once a trustee at Shaw, now Rust. So in 1878, she went to visit her grandmother. Uh, But while she was there, she was informed that a yellow fever epidemic had hit her hometown, and the disease took both of her parents and her infant brother. So it was terrible. So following the funerals of her family, friends and relatives decided that the five remaining Wells children should be separated and sent to various foster homes. And Ida was like, I'm not having this. This is not happening. So... To keep her younger siblings together as a family, she actually found work as a teacher in a black elementary school um, in the county near Holly Springs, mm-hmm. and her paternal grandmother named Peggy Wells, along with other friends and relatives, actually stayed with her siblings and cared for them during the week while Wells was teaching and supporting the family. Oh, good. Um, about two years after um, Wells's grandmother, Peggy, had a stroke and her sister Eugenia died Wells and her two youngest sisters moved to Memphis to live with an aunt who was known as Fanny Butler, uh, and this was in 1883. So she's in Memphis now. She was hired in Woodstock by the Shelby County School System, and during her summer vacation, she attended summer session at Fisk University, which is <laughs> also another HBCU in Nashville. And she also attended LeMoyne-Owen College, which is another HBCU in Memphis. Um, she was... Uh, She held really strong political opinions. She provoked many people with her views on women's rights. She was a strong personality. She knew exactly what her mind was. Um, At the age of 24, she wrote, I love this so much, quote, I will not begin at this late day by doing what my soul abhors, sugaring men, weak, deceitful creatures with flattery to retain them as escorts or to gratify a revenge. I was like, yes, (laughs) (laughs) Weak, deceitful creatures. <laughs> Sugaring men, like just absolutely dripping with contempt. It's <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> so, in 1884, a train conductor with the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad ordered Wells to give up her seat in the first class ladies' car and moving to the smoking car, which was already like super crowded what? with a bunch of other passengers. And the previous year, so in 1883, the United States Supreme Court had ruled against the Federal Civil Rights Act of 1875, which had banned racial discrimination in public accommodations. So the verdict supported railroad companies that chose to racially segregate their passengers. So when Ida Bell refused to give up her seat, the conductor and two men dragged her out of the car and out of the train. Like, she was kicked off the train. So she was not having this. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, And she gained publicity in Memphis when she wrote a newspaper article for The Living Way, which was a black church weekly, about her treatment on the train. So in Memphis, she hired um, an African-American attorney to sue the railroad, um, but her lawyer was actually paid off by the railroad, so she hired a white attorney. Okay. Um, And she eventually won the case, but then the railroad appealed to the Tennessee Supreme Court, and then it was overturned. And then to add insult to injury, she was ordered to pay court costs. (sighs) So... She was super disappointed, as you might uh-huh. imagine, but she was undaunted. She continued to teach elementary school. She became increasingly active as a journalist and a writer. Um, she was offered an editorial position for the Evening Star in Washington, D.C., and she began writing weekly articles for the Living Way newspaper under the pen name Iola. So that's Ooh. something, it's a good trivia thing. You should mm-hmm. know, you know, the writer whose pen name was Iola is Ida B. Wells. How's that spelled? I-O-L-A. Okay. Iola. Um, articles she wrote under her pen name, Iola attacked racist Jim Crow policies. And in 1889, she became editor and co-owner with JL Fleming of the free speech and headlight. So that's the whole title of the, the newspaper, the free speech and headlight. This was a black owned newspaper established by the Reverend Taylor Nightingale and based at the Beale Street Baptist Church in Memphis. So in 1891, she was dismissed from her teaching post by the Memphis Board of Education due to her articles criticizing conditions in the black schools of the region. They were like, you're causing too much issue, please leave. And she was obviously devastated because this was her regular way of like getting money and supporting Mm -hmm. herself and her family. Um, But she was obviously undaunted and she concentrated her energy on writing articles for The Living Way and The Free Speech and
0: Headlight. Mm It's kind of like the the modern day equivalent would be a teacher tweeting that her school district is awful. And then the school district being like, well, you don't work here anymore. So that's fine. Exactly.
1: Yes, exactly. That's, that's definitely like the, the contemporary equivalent. So after the lynching of three of her friends in 1892, she became one of the nation's most vocal anti-lynching activists. So the story of this is Calvin McDowell, Thomas Moss, and Henry Stewart They owned the People's Grocery in Memphis. Um, And they were very successful at this grocery store. Like, people Mm -hmm. really enjoyed it. They made a lot of money. But unfortunately, their economic success angered the white owners of a store across the street. Um, So on March 9th, a group of white men gathered to confront McDowell Moss and Stewart. And during the ensuing scuffle, several of the white men received injuries and authorities arrested the three black business owners Mm -hmm. because they were trying to defend themselves. And because some white guy has got a couple of bloody noses, (laughs) they get arrested. Um, So they're in jail, these three men, uh, and then subsequently a white mob of 75 men subsequently broke into the jail captured McDowell, Moss, and Stewart and lynched them, specifically shot them
0: dead. Oh my God.
1: So as an FYI, a quick definition of lynching, because I feel like people when they hear lynching, they think automatically of someone being hanged, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But lynching is basically extrajudicial killing by a mob. Mm -hmm. Um, It often involves hanging, but not always. And in this particular U.S. context, most often historically refers to the murder of black people for anything that anyone might come up with without having to go through the courts kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Um, Apparently just before he was killed, Moss said to the mob, quote, tell my people to go West. There is no justice here. Mm. So after the lynching of her friends, because Ida Wells knew these people Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, went Went to their store store and Mm -hmm. was friends with them. She wrote in free speech and headlight, urging black people to leave Memphis altogether. She wrote, there is therefore only one thing left to do: save our money and leave a town which will neither protect our lives and property nor give us a fair trial in the courts, but take us out and murder us in cold blood when accused by white persons. So she was not afraid to use very strong language when she's writing about this. Mm-hmm. She felt like the the like the cruel injustices of this did not, you know, deserve you know soft language right. or or any of this, um, which. I give her a lot of credit for because she was one a woman who was already someone who was, you know, less than in society during this time. And also a black woman who was, you know, even more less than. Um, So the event actually was a turning point in her life and career because she began to investigate lynchings using investigative journalist techniques. Mm -hmm. So she began to interview people associated with lynchings, including uh, a lynching in Tunica, Mississippi in 1892, where she concluded that the father of a young white woman had implored a lynch mob to kill a black man with whom his daughter was having a sexual relationship under a pretense to, quote, save the reputation of his daughter. Oh, my God. I know. It's like, it's disgusting. So she was incensed by this, and she launched an extensive investigation of of these things. And in 1892, she published a pamphlet called Southern Horrors, which detailed her findings. Mm. Um, Through her lectures and books, she wrote a book called A Red Record in 1895, And in these these writings, she countered the, quote, rape myth used by Lynch Moss to justify the murder of black men. Uh, And on May 21st, 1892, she published an editorial in the Free Speech refuting what she called, quote, that old threadbare lie that Negro men rape white women. If Southern men are not careful, a conclusion might be reached which will be very damaging to the moral reputation of their women. (laughs) Yeah, so I was like, All right, yeah. So through her research, she found that lynch victims had challenged white authority or had successfully competed with whites in business or politics. And so as a result of her outspokenness, a mob destroyed the building and the contents of the free speech and threatened to kill her.
0: Oh my God.
1: They like destroyed, not just the offices, like destroyed the building and like the printing press and everything that was in that building. Um, She thankfully was out of town at the time. She was vacationing in Manhattan. Uh, But she never returned to Memphis. Uh, She subsequently accepted a job with the New York Age and continued her anti-lynching campaign from New York City. And for the next three years, she resided in Harlem, initially as a guest at the home of civil rights leader and writer Timothy Thomas Fortune and his wife, Carrie. Um, Also, according to historians, no copy of the Memphis Free Speech Survives. Wow! Our only yeah, it's wild. So our only knowledge of it comes from reprinted articles and other archived newspapers. Wow! So um, she eventually took her movement to England and she established uh, the British Anti-Lynching Society in 1894. Um, she traveled twice Balls. to Britain in her yeah right. <laughs> she traveled twice to Britain in her campaign against lynching. Uh, the first time in 1893, and her second in 1894. And she and her supporters in America saw these tours as an opportunity for her to reach larger white audiences with her anti-lynching campaign, something she had been unable to accomplish in America. So in 1894, before leaving the U.S. for a second visit to Great Britain, Wells called on William Penn Nixon, who was the editor of the Daily Interocean, which was a newspaper in Chicago. um, And it was the only major white paper that persistently denounced lynching. Wow. So after she told Nixon about her planned tour, he asked her to write for the newspaper while in England, kind of give dispatches of her okay. time there. So that means that she was the first African-American woman to be a paid correspondent for a mainstream white newspaper. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. So she toured England, Scotland, and Wales for two months. She addressed audiences of thousands and she rallied this moral crusade amongst the British. Um, she relied very heavily on her pamphlet, Southern Horrors, in her first tour, and she showed shocking photographs of actual lynchings in oh, America. Oh,
0: wow. So she was really
1: using this mm-hmm. kind of provocative, like, in-your-face kind of educational mm-hmm. way of saying, like, this is real. We, you need to look at this. Right. Because it is so terrible. It's real and it's happening and you need to do something about this. So as a result of her two lecture tours in Britain, she received uh, a lot of coverage in the British and the American press. But many of the articles published by the American press at the time of her return to the U.S. was, uh, they were pretty hostile personal t- critiques mm-hmm. rather than actual reports of her anti-lynching positions and beliefs. Uh, the New York Times, the gray lady, for example, called her, quote, a slanderous and nasty, nasty-minded mulattress. <gasps> Ooh, Ooh. yeah it's very
0: it's like
1: you know it's very bad and you know you think about like this you know the past becomes kind of flattened after a while and so you imagine like the Jim Crow south like all southerners racist and terrible and all this stuff and like the the enlightened north like new yorkers Mm -hmm. like we're all abolitionists and knew what was what and that kind of thing but this is the new york times like this is like the paper of record and they're you know, saying terrible, nasty, low things about this woman who's trying to make change in her community <clears throat> and in you know the world. So, despite these attacks, Wells had nevertheless gained extensive recognition and credibility, and an international audience of supporters for her cause. So, uh, a little bit about her personal life. So, on June 27th, in 1895, in Chicago, at Bethel A.M.A. Church, Wells married attorney Ferdinand L. Barnett. He was a widower with two sons. Um, He lived in Chicago. He was a prominent attorney. He was a civil rights activist, and he was also a journalist. So like Wells, he spoke widely against lynchings and for the civil rights of African-Americans. And they had met actually in 1893 because they were working together on a pamphlet protesting the lack of black representation at the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Barnett founded the Chicago Conservator, the first black newspaper in Chicago in 1878 and she began writing for the paper in 1893 and she later acquired a partial ownership interest. Oh, great. Yeah. So, and then after marrying him, she assumed the role of editor. So they were like very, uh, they were just very aligned in everything Mm -hmm. that it was a legal union as well as like this partnership of ideas and actions. You know, they were both journalists. they were both established activists. By the time they got married, they had a shared commitment to civil rights um, in an interview, her daughter Elfrida said that the two had like interests and that their journalist careers were intertwined. Hmm. So this sort of close working relationship between a wife and husband was actually unusual at the time, regardless of their race, as women, as you know, often played a more traditional but domestic role in a marriage. So, in addition to Barnett's two children, um, who were their names were Ferdinand and Albert, uh, the couple had four more: Charles Akkid, Herman Kolsat. Ida Bell Wells Barnett Jr., which I love. I love it when a woman names her girl after herself. Like there should be more lady juniors. Um, (laughs) I just I think that's important. And then the youngest was Elfrida Margarita Barnett. Um, (gasps) Elfrida
0: Margarita,
1: yeah, two of my favorite
0: foods,
1: (laughs) right? Um, Her married name was uh, Duster, and she was a civil rights activist in her own right. Her name is Elfrida Duster. Um, And she died in 1983, but she was a prominent Chicago civil rights activist. Um, So in a chapter of Wells's posthumous autobiography, which was entitled Crusade for Justice, um, she describes the difficult challenge of splitting her time between family and work. And she continued to work after the birth of her first child. She traveled and brought the infant Charles with her. And although she tried to kind of balance her roles as mother and as a national activist, it was alleged that she was not always successful. As you might imagine, apparently Susan B. Anthony said that she seemed distracted, (laughs) which is like, uh, yeah, Sue, she was distracted. By her baby. By her babies, uh, plural. Like, she's literally a woman doing it all. Just because you decided to be, you know, by yourself, no kids, no husband, doesn't mean... (laughs) That you could be nasty about a woman who's got a kid, God. Whatever. Susan B. Anthony, hero of Rochester. <laughs>
0: <laughs> she has a bridge named after her here. Actually, sorry, guys, it's co named. She yes. shares the name of a bridge. She does. They couldn't decide, so does the Frederick Douglass Susan B. Anthony Bridge. Yeah, they call it. Some people call it like the, the Freddie Sue. Sue.
1: Yeah, which I I think that's dumb. <laughs> that's dumb. Um, Okay, so Ida B. also established Chicago's first kindergarten, prioritizing black children. Um, It was located in Bethel AMA AMA Church, which was actually in the the lecture room. And this kind of demonstrated how her public activism and her personal life were connecting. Mm -hmm. Um, Her great-granddaughter, Michelle Duster, noted... When her older children started getting of school age, then she recognized that black children did not have the same kind of educational opportunities as some other students. And so her attitude was, well, since it doesn't exist, we'll create it ourselves. So she really had this ability to kind of like uh, adapt and overcome Mm -hmm. thing. So uh, none other than Frederick Douglass, who was, as you know, the 19th century's acknowledged leader for African-American civil rights, Um, he praised her work. He was a big fan of hers. He would give her introductions and sometimes financial support for her investigations. Um, When he died in 1895, she was perhaps at like the, the height of her notoriety. But... Many men and women were ambivalent or against a woman taking the lead in black civil rights at a time where women were not seen as and often not mm. allowed to be leaders by the wider society. So there was this assumption, I think maybe maybe not by her herself because there isn't anything written about this, but that, you know, because he was such a huge supporter of her and because she was similar to him in her like um in her powerful and very intense defense of civil rights um and like unapologetic kind of positioning Mm -hmm. that she would be his successor. Uh, But obviously for the reasons I mentioned, the world wasn't ready yet. The world was not ready yet. So for the new leading voices, which of course were men, it was Booker T. Washington and his rival W.E.B. Du Bois and um, more traditionally minded women activists. Mm -hmm. Wells often came to be seen as too radical Um, She encountered and sometimes collaborated with the others, but they also had many disagreements while also competing for attention for their ideas and programs. So this is a good point to make in that um, in any kind of activist group or, or a movement of this kind of thing, uh, you know, it's populated by people. Yeah. And regardless of like, everyone wants to get to this end game, they want, you know, this, they want equality or they want justice or, or whatever, (laughs) a lot of times there will be infighting inside of it. And that's perfectly understandable. You're going to get that because people are individuals and they have different ways of what they think is like the best possible way to go. Mm-hmm. So it's something to be mentioned because like there's a lot of talk about like the Black Lives Matter becoming like, you know, there's a lot of infighting and like where's the money going and that kind of thing. But this is the kind of conflict that arises in any kind of group of people, you know? Right. There's not a single you know, activist group or activist cause that doesn't have its own, you know, infighting in
0: it. Right. If you, yeah, if we, if we just make up a, a, for example, fans of Star Trek. Yes. Everybody didn't just decide we're only having one Star Trek fan club.
1: There's a bunch of Star
0: Trek fan clubs. Oh yeah. A bunch of different regional groups and then maybe some national groups and not one Star Trek fan club is in charge of everybody and so exactly. of course there's going to be you know our group is better our group should be the one to get more attention yeah. why aren't you paying attention to our group that sort of thing just but to- the unit. <laughs> yeah
1: to be reductive totally that yes. makes perfect sense but you know there's an umbrella cause that everyone is working toward yes and that's that's the important thing ultimately um so back to Ida B so there are there are differing accounts for why her name was excluded from the original list of founders of the NAACP. Oh. And apparently she was physically present when the NAACP was founded. And everybody else was named like <sighs> a co-founder of the NAACP except for her.
0: Were there other women there?
1: Um, I don't think think so? At least, no, there weren't um, women who were as prominent Okay. or as, mm-hmm. I guess, I don't want to say powerful because that sounds like she's you know a dictator or whatever, but like, or as influential, influential. as mm-hmm. she was. Mm-hmm. Um, in his autobiography, Dusk of Dawn, Du Bois implied that Wells chose not to be included. However, in her autobiography, Wells stated that Du Bois deliberately excluded her from the list. So, who, <laughs> I am more inclined to believe her, <laughs> frankly. So um, so having settled in Chicago, she continued her anti-lynching work while becoming more focused on the civil rights of black people in Chicago specifically. Um, she worked with national civil rights leaders to protest a major exhibition. She was active in the National Women's Club movement, and she ultimately ran for the Illinois State Senate. Unfortunately, she did not win. Um, She was also passionate about women's rights and suffrage. She was a spokeswoman and an advocate for women being successful in the workplace, having equal opportunities and creating a name for themselves. And she also uh, prevented Chicago schools from creating an officially segregated system. Like she heard about it and she got a friend and was like, this isn't happening. Mm -hmm. And then put a stop to it, which is pretty cool. Um, She also had a really uh, strong influence on feminism, specifically black feminism uh, because she explained that the defense of white women's honor allowed Southern white men to get away with murder by projecting their own history of sexual violence onto black men. So her call for all races and genders to be accountable for their actions showed black women that they can speak out and fight for their rights. So by portraying the horrors of lynching, she worked to show that racial and gender discrimination are linked, and this furthered the black feminist cause. So she could you could argue that she was like, the you know the grandmother of black feminism specifically because of this like conclusion that she had drawn in her writings which is really cool to think about um she began writing her autobiography crusade for justice um but she never finished the book um it would eventually be posthumously published and edited by her daughter Elfrida in 1970 as crusade for justice the autobiography of ida b wells um, Ida B. died of uremia, which is kidney failure, in Chicago on March 25th, 1931, at the age of 68.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, she was not elderly. Yeah. Um, she was buried in Oakwood Cemetery on Chicago's South Side. So, if you want to visit her grave, if you're in the Chicago area, check it out. Um, her legacy is legion, honestly. Like, mm-hmm. there are a ton of journalism awards in her name. There's the Ida B. Wells Memorial Foundation and the Ida B. Wells Museum. They have also been established to protect, preserve, and promote her legacy. And in her hometown of Holly Springs, Mississippi, there is an Ida B. Wells Barnett Museum in her honor that acts as a cultural center of African-American history. So she was like in her, you know, arguably short life, did an incredible amount and was unapologetic about how she felt about things and really did not stop fighting for justice and Equality. So that was Ida B.
0: Wells. That's terrific. I think Isn't all cool? I knew about her was that she was a journalist who, yeah, was trying to fight for equality. But I didn't know all of those really cool details. Yeah, it's really
1: cool. So I'm glad. I'm glad I was able to uh, to find that out even for myself. Yeah.
0: Thank you, Lauren. So,
1: oh, you're welcome. So my quiz today um, is about women in journalism. So question number one. This British-Iranian journalist and television host is the chief international anchor for CNN and host of a CNN International's nightly news program and has worked as an international journalist for nearly 40 years. Her fearless war correspondence and journalistic poise was also the inspiration for a high school Rory Gilmore in early seasons of Gilmore Girls. Who is this journalist? Question number two. Margaret Burke White was a documentary photographer who became arguably best known as the first foreign photographer permitted to take pictures of Soviet industry under the Soviet's five-year plan, as the first American female war photojournalist, and for having one of her photographs on the construction of Fort Peck Dam on the cover of the first issue of this classic American Weekly magazine, which ran in various iterations from 1883 to 2000, and whose back issues you can definitely see in antique shops and in your grandmother's attic. What is this magazine? Question number three, Gwen Ifill was an American journalist and television newscaster who became the first African-American woman to host a nationally televised U.S. public affairs program with Washington Week in Review in 1999. She also made history in 2013 with Judy Woodruff by being named the first entirely female anchor and editor duo of this publicly funded TV news program. What is this nearly 50-year-old program? Question number four, This early American journalist, industrialist, inventor, and charity worker who was widely known for her record-breaking trip around the world in 72 days, an emulation of Jules Verne's fictional character Phileas Fogg, and an expose in which she worked undercover to report on a mental institution from within. Her fearless dedication to first-person discoveries launched a new kind of investigative journalism. Who is this gutsy dame? Question number five. Barbara Ehrenreich is a widely read and award winning columnist and essayist, and the author of 21 books. She is perhaps best known for her 2001 book, subtitled On Not Getting By in America, which was an award winning expose of the living and working conditions of the working poor. What is the title of this book, which is a modern term meaning to unfairly charge someone many small amounts for minor services? Question number six. This science writer wrote the 1962 book Silent Spring, which called attention to the dangers of pesticides and helped inspire the environmental movement. She was also a marine biologist and maybe a closet lesbian? Name her. Question number seven. Dorothy Thompson was an American journalist and radio broadcaster. She was the first American journalist to be expelled from Nazi Germany in 1934 and was one of the few women news commentators on radio during the 1930s. She married three times, most famously to her second husband, a famous writer and playwright who wrote such novels as Babbitt and Elmer Gantry. Who was Dorothy Thompson's husband? Question number eight You know her best from writing some of the best rom coms of the 20th century. But this screenwriter and playwright started out her career as a groundbreaking journalist at the New York Post and then as a columnist for Esquire, before moving to screenwriting after co-writing an early rewrite of All the President's Men with her then-husband Carl Bernstein. Who is this funny lady? Question number nine. This feminist icon with the legendary huge sunglasses co-founded Ms. Magazine after working as a columnist for the New York Post. In 1971, she co-founded the National Women's Political Caucus, which provides training and support for women who seek elected and appointed offices in government. Who is this superstar of mid-century feminism? And finally, question number 10. This legendary woman journalist is best known for her yellow jumpsuit and her 80s style, but she was a respected TV news reporter and later a formidable warrior ally in her own right. She was also the first human to discover those pubescent, deformed, embattled terrapins. Who am I talking about? I'll give you a minute to think about it, and then we'll be back with your answers.
0: Where is everybody? Where's Mr. Jefferson? That boy Oscar Dider left to putting down, putting down his writing pen. With that old Abe Lincoln and his disappearing reconstruction plan Well, someone got a rope around my people's neck again My name is Ida B. Wells, just a plain American Proud to be a woman and proud of the color, color of my skin was born in Mississippi, moved on up to Memphis to teach the children. Oh, my people.
1: Okay, you ready? I oh, gotta refill the wine. Gotta refilling refill
0: the wine. some wine. Look, it's a big bottle. We have to drink it because we've already opened it and I'm out of wine stoppers. Oh, see. <sighs> what
1: are you gonna do? You gotta do it. You paid money for it. I
0: paid $12 for this. It would be very wasteful if you were to throw it away. Mm. Mm. All right. Anyway, sorry.
1: No, it's fine. Please Let's do that. I'm always happy to support some, some night, some evening Friday, night drinking, drinking. <laughs> some night drinking, working on my night wine. All right. Question number one, this British Iranian journalist and television host is the chief international anchor for CNN and host of a CNN international's nightly interview program and has worked as an international journalist for Nile 40 years. Her fearless war correspondence and journalistic poise was also the inspiration for a high school Rory Gilmore and early seasons of Gilmore Girls. Who is this journalist? Is this Christiane Amanpour? This is Christiane Amanpour. She has such a beautiful speaking voice. Mm-hmm. Um, she famously took over for the disgraced Charlie Rose on PBS in 2018 with her Amanpour and company, which is still running. It sounds so like you know.
0: a nice place to buy some candles, though. Yeah, Amanpour and Company. It smells
1: beautiful when you walk in. Oh my gosh. And it's like it's like a scent that you can't identify, but you like want your whole life to smell like that. Exactly. Yeah. I bet Christiana Amanpour smells amazing. All right. Question number 2. Margaret Bourke-White was a documentary photographer who became arguably best known as the first foreign photographer permitted to take pictures of Soviet industry under the Soviets' five-year plan as the first American female war photojournalist and for having one of her photographs on the construction of Fort Peck Dam on the cover of the first issue of this classic American Weekly Magazine, which ran in various iterations from 1883 to 2000, and whose back issues you can definitely see in antique shops and in your grandmother's attic. Name this Weekly Magazine.
0: I'm guessing Life.
1: You are correct. It is Life Magazine. Uh, Burke White was the first female photojournalist hired for life back in 1936, where she worked off and on until her retirement in 69. Nice. So she like really lived and her story is so interesting. I'm thinking about maybe doing an episode on her, but she shot portraits of Stalin and his friends while she was embedded in the Soviet Union. She was the first known female war correspondent and the first woman to be allowed to work in combat zones during World War II. She was a photographer for life during the Korean War while she was almost 50 years old. She was just like, so cool.
0: She's like, hi, I'm I'm here to do my job now. You can't yeah. tell me I'm not going to do my job. I'm going to do it and I'm going to kick everybody's ass doing it. I'm going to take amazing photographs. Fuck you. Joe, you I'm, have something in your mustache.
1: Let me just, you know what? Actually, you get it. <laughs> We're going to leave that in. <laughs> we'll do Photoshop afterwards. Anyway, question number three. Gwen Eiffel was an American journalist and television newscaster who became the first African American woman to host a nationally televised U.S. public affairs program with *Washington Week in Review* in 1999. She also made history in 2013 with Judy Woodruff by being named the first entirely female anchor and editor duo of this publicly funded TV news program. What is this nearly
0: 50-year-old program? I don't think I know this answer, but I'm—I I know it was a PBS. Uh, yes, I will say. News hour.
1: You got it. It's PBS <gasps> NewsHour. Good job. From August 5th, 2013 to November 11th, 2016, Woodruff and then co-anchor Gwen Ifill were the first and only all-female anchor team on a national nightly news program on American broadcast television.
0: Which That's is amazing. Not nothing. Yes.
1: Sadly, Gwen died of cancer in November of 2016, and she was only 61. Oh, she had breast and endometrial cancer. Ugh. Just, ugh, so awful. Okay, question number four. This early American journalist, industrialist, inventor, and charity worker who was widely known for her record-breaking chirp around the world in 72 days, an emulation of Jules Verne's fictional character, Phileas Fogg, and an expose in which she worked undercover to report on a mental institution from within, her fearless dedication to first-person discoveries launched a new kind of investigative journalism – Who is this gutsy dame? This is Pittsburgh's own Nellie Bly. You are correct. Um, The asylum expose that she wrote was entitled 10 Days in a Madhouse. It was published in 1887. And it began the oft dismissed category of what was called stunt girl journalism. Um, However, her biographer, Brooke Kroger, she argued... Her two-part series in October 1887 was a sensation, effectively launching the decade of stunt or detective reporting, a clear precursor to investigative journalism and one of Joseph Pulitzer's innovations that helped give new journalism of the 1880s and 1890s its moniker. The employment of stunt girls has often been dismissed as a circulation-boosting gimmick of the sensationalist press. However, the genre also provided women with their first collective opportunity to demonstrate that, as a class, they had the skills necessary for the highest level of general reporting. The stunt girls, with Bly as their prototype, were the first women to enter the journalistic mainstream in the 20th century.
0: First of all, I love that as a genre of writing. Second of all, with Nellie Bly, it was like only her... um, editor new yes and you know so and actually that's kind of my nightmare is like you go undercover and only one person knows the truth and then like either something happens to them or you can't reach them or whatever and then you, you get, get murdered stuck in that like but you're like but i'm not crazy i'm yeah. not crazy i work for like, the yeah, new york okay. okay. post and they're like
1: <laughs> okay uh-huh. lady
0: yeah uh-huh you made that in crafts you made that in craft time <laughs>
1: Yeah, like I'm pretty sure that's like an entire genre of horror movie where it's like, I'm not crazy and I'm stuck in a <laughs> mental institution, but are they actually crazy? Like that whole thing. Yeah, that's a nightmare. No, thank you. I will stay outside of the mental institution unless I absolutely need to be in there. <laughs> thank you very much. Until otherwise much. committed. On yes, purpose. until otherwise proven insane. All right. Question number five. Barbara Ehrenreich is a widely read and award-winning columnist and essayist and the author of 21 books. She is perhaps best known for her 2001 book subtitled On Not Getting By in America, which was an award-winning expose of the living and working conditions of the poor. What is the title of this book, which is a modern term meaning to unfairly charge someone many small amounts for minor services?
0: I'm pretty sure this is... Nickel and dime? It is. Nickel and dime? Nickel and, and dime. Nickel. Nickel and and okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the
1: book detailed Aaron Reich's account of being an undercover journalist attempting to live off of minimum wage jobs and the difficulties of doing so. Um, she later wrote a companion book called Bait and Switch uh, in 2005, which discussed her attempt to find a white collar job and not doing that great mm-hmm. of doing of a job. Um, I remember when Nickel and Dime came out because I was working in a little bookstore called Schmarns and Bobel. It was very popular, even amongst just like casual readers Mm -hmm. who weren't really like normally reading nonfiction. So it was very interesting. Okay. Question number six. This science writer wrote the 1962 book Silent Spring, which called attention to the dangers of pesticides and helped inspire the environmental movement. She was also a marine biologist and maybe a closet lesbian. Name her. This is Pittsburgh's own <laughs> Rachel Carson. <laughs> you know, I didn't realize that I had so many, so many Pittsburgh gales on this uh, list. I, I, I'll say that I did that on purpose just for you. Um, so Rachel Carson lovingly corresponded with her neighbor and friend, Dorothy Freeman, for 12 years when they weren't spending summers together on coastal Maine. They exchanged nearly 900 letters And shortly before Carson's death, she and Freeman destroyed hundreds of their letters of their correspondence. Mm -hmm. Um, The surviving correspondence was published in 1995 as Always Rachel, The Letters of Rachel Carson and Dorothy Freeman, 1952 to 1964, an intimate portrait of a remarkable friendship edited by Dorothy's granddaughter. Yeah. I was like, hmm. Although I, I should say Dorothy's granddaughter did say, you know, like, The tone of their letters were very romantic. It's definitely possible that they did have a romantic relationship, even though you know my grandmother was married Mm -hmm. and had children. Um, But I just think the the use of remarkable friendship is just such a funny thing. (laughs) So so dated. Anyway, okay. Question number seven: Dorothy Thompson was an American journalist and radio broadcaster. She was the first American journalist to be expelled from Nazi Germany in 1934 and was one of the few women news commentators on radio during the 1930s. She married three times, most famously to her second husband, a famous writer and playwright who wrote such novels as Babbitt and Elmer Gantry, who was Dorothy Thompson's husband.
0: This is going to kill me. Cause I once upon a time, I knew this, uh... I mean, you can't keep everything in your yeah, head. You know, know what I mean? There's so it's many okay. new things I have to put there in there. Are right? Like who these new Muppets are on Sesame Street, Lauren? There Do you are you know new there Muppets? are many new Muppets that have joined Sesame Street since our our heyday. Okay.
1: I mean, I knew about the I don't
0: know the the one that's like a fairy or thinks the she's a fairy. fairy. That's Abby Cadabby. And then, that's then there's one, one of got favorite. Rock as like a best friend. That's that's Zoe. <laughs> Yeah. And, and you know, she's been friends with that rock since at least 2006. So I oh. don't know why Elmo's rant about it just came up on Twitter recently. Well, I think what
1: Elmo was doing was tapping into a rich vein of, you know, people
0: just being sick of Zoe's shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Ugh. Is Babbitt written by a guy named Charles or a guy named John? Neither. 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 Well, fuck. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Do you want me to tell you?
1: Yeah. It's Sinclair Lewis.
0: Shit. See, that's the thing. <laughs> uh. Sinclair Lewis and Lewis Sinclair, I yeah. because they're so confusing, I have I know. just, they have canceled each other out in my brain, and I don't think about either of them at all, even though I talked about them in a whole episode about, like, people I get confused. I know. Ah. It's all
1: right. It's okay. The, you know what? Babbitt was very boring. <laughs> anyway, back to Dorothy. So while she was working in Munich, she met and interviewed Adolf Hitler for the first time in 1931. So this would be the basis for a subsequent book entitled My, my Lunch with Hitler. No, it's even better. It's I Saw Hitler. <laughs> the, name of her book, the name of her book is just I Saw Hitler. <laughs> but in in I Saw Hitler, she wrote about the dangers of him winning power in Germany. Like it was, was extremely okay. anti-Hitler. She described way, him. I saw
0: the, him and I... Uh,
1: and I did not like what I saw. <laughs> she wrote, so she described him in the following terms. Quote, he is formless, almost faceless, a man whose continence is a caricature, a man whose framework seems cartilaginous without bones. He is inconsequent and voluble, ill-poised and insecure. He, was, he is the very prototype of a little man. If only more people had listened to her. I know, right? So the Nazis obviously considered both her book and her articles offensive. And so in August of 34, she was expelled from Germany. And so she has the title of being the first American journalist to be kicked out of Germany. You know what? <laughs> of good Nazi for her. Germany. Yeah, good for her. It's a, she should wear it proud like a badge. Okay. Question number eight, you know her best from writing some of the best rom-coms of the 20th century, but this screenwriter and playwright started out her career as a groundbreaking journalist at the New York Post, and then as a columnist for Esquire before moving to screenwriting after co-writing an early rewrite of all the president's men with her then-husband, Carl Bernstein. Who is this funny lady?
0: My guess is Nora Ephron.
1: You are absolutely correct. She obviously was also a director Um, She directed a couple of the movies that she wrote, including Sleepless in Seattle in 93 and You've Got Mail in 98. Both, as you know, starred Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. Great movies. Okay, question number nine. This feminist icon with a legendary huge sunglasses co-founded Ms. Magazine after working as a columnist for the New York Post. In 1971, she co-founded the National Women's Political Caucus, which provides training and support for women who seek elected and appointed offices in government. Who is the superstar of mid-century feminism?
0: (sighs) Okay. Okay. So Ms. Magazine, Mm -hmm. I thought, was Gloria Steinem. I don't to answer. Should I just stay with that yeah, answer? Yeah, okay. you should just stop. Okay. I didn't know yes. she wore big sunglasses. So then I oh, yeah. started thinking about Iris Apple, And then I was like, I don't know what Iris Apple did other than wear big sunglasses. So I didn't know. I mean, Iris Apple, who is still kicking, by the way. Oh, wait, what? no. Let me double check and make sure
1: Iris Apple is still alive. She may have died recent, like very recently. Nope. She's 100 years old. <laughs> Iris Apple is 100 years old. As of this recording. Uh, yeah. As of this recording. Yes, yes. Um, she was a businesswoman and uh, a fashion icon. That was basically Iris's whole deal. Um, Gloria Steinem, a lot of her early like interviews and and press conferences and things, she's wearing like these giants nineteen seventies tinted. Ugh. It's very like glam. Um, so Gloria, this glorious bitch is eighty seven years old, and she's still doing the Lord's work. God bless her. Um, also for uh, those of you who are interested, historians and archivists, the Gloria Steinem papers are held in the Sophia Smith Collection at as you can imagine, Smith College. Terrific. So if you are interested, they are all there. And finally, question number 10. This legendary woman journalist is best known for her yellow jumpsuit and her 80s style, but she was a respected TV news reporter and later a formidable warrior ally in her own right. She was also the first human to discover these pubescent, deformed, embattled terrapins. Who am I talking about?
0: This is April from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> yes, this is April O'Neil. <laughs> so I, the reason why
1: I literally wrote this five minutes before we started yeah. like th- recording. Well, I mean, just this question. Because originally I had like a Barbara Walters question at the end. But I told Steve, I was like, oh, I was having such a hard time with this quiz. And he was like, oh, what's it, what was it about? And I said, women journalists. And he goes, oh, like April O'Neill, And I was like, uh... I mean, I guess he was like, you should do a question on April (laughs) O'Neil.
0: That's terrific. So that's
1: Steve's Steve's inspiration was that. That's funny. So that was my
0: quiz. You did great. I loved it. Thank you. Good. I'm so glad. I loved that
1: last question. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I thought it was pretty good. Crack up. Yeah. It was a lot of like, you know,
0: important journalist ladies who did like important things. And I was like,
1: you know, I should add some
0: levity. (laughs) So... What a terrific episode, Lauren. Thank you, Julia. That's very kind of you to say. I hope everybody, I hope all you out there
1: listened and enjoyed as well. Uh, uh, Last week, our
0: Bugs episode was so good. (laughs) I loved it. (laughs) Oh my gosh, it was so great. You know what's really funny is... You know, p- peek behind the curtain a little bit. Sometimes Lauren and I record these things, and then we have no idea what we said. And so oh, it's no. really funny when we listen Mm-mm. to a guest episode. And like, you know, I hear I hear the guests like saying something, and I think to myself, like, "Oh, here's a funny thing i that that I would how I would react to this." And then I hear myself on the podcast like say the very thing <laughs> that my brain like, was like, "Good I was one, like, oh, Julia. I already did say that. That's great, past Julia. I'm hilarious. <laughs> I'm so funny. But yeah, Nina, I definitely thank you again for coming yeah. on. That was a lot of fun and thank you for putting up with our stupid questions. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for putting up with us like shrieking into the microphones about bugs. Um, but yeah, that was great. We do have some, um, some more mm. guest spots coming up. Some fun topics that we are very we are so excited to. about these. And we have a super special guest coming up. In April that I think you guys are really going to enjoy. It's not a celebrity.
0: Well, it's a, it's a it's celebrity. A celebrity. Yes. He's a it's celebrity. It's a bit of a crossover. If you yeah. a little bit of a crossover. I'll, you know what? I don't want to no no give it away. It. I do to yeah. it away. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so thank you so much for listening, guys. And we will catch you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.